if we don't understand what we have here in religious freedom, we risk losing it. And I, I worry tremendously about that. I would like people to understand that religious freedom and religious liberty is an important liberty that every single one of this in this country enjoys. It protects every single one of us really from each other. And we need to value it. We need to understand it better. We need to cherish it. And we need to do our best to ensure that we're protecting the religious freedom of others, including those with whom we disagree religiously. This is God Unites, Finding Spiritual Unity in Religious Diversity. In Episode 2 of this podcast series, I shared some of my own views on the subject of freedom of religion. That and other past episodes can be accessed on our website at GodUnites.com. Today, we're privileged to have as our guest a genuine expert on the subject, Stephen Collis. Steve is a professor at the law school at the University of Texas at Austin, where he researches and teaches about the intersection of law and religion, as well as other First Amendment topics, and where he's director of the law school's Law and Religion Clinic. He's a frequent speaker to academic and lay audiences across the United States, and even to foreign diplomats on behalf of the United States Department of State. His scholarly work has been published in several law reviews and cited by justices of the Supreme Court. Among other publications, he's the author of the book Deep Conviction with the subtitle True Stories of Ordinary Americans Fighting for the Freedom to Live Their Beliefs. I'm currently reading that book and can attest that Steve is a master storyteller and his book brings to life the history of law in the United States regarding the free exercise of religion by telling the stories behind the legal cases and headlines. Steve has been interviewed by and quoted in various news and media outlets and has been a guest on television shows and numerous podcasts. We're fortunate to have him with us today. Steve, welcome to God Unites. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Just to get started, we're going to be talking about freedom of religion. But in true lawyerly fashion, being a lawyer myself, before we get into our discussion on freedom of religion, we should probably start by defining some terms, beginning with what we mean by religion, as you will be using that word. Is it limited to belief in God? Uh, no, and I would I would tell you though if you're if you're a lawyer looking for a real definition of religion, you're going to be sorely disappointed. Uh, the Supreme Court has struggled over the years to define what religion means when talking about freedom of religion. It has never actually provided a working definition, and lower courts have all come up with all sorts of different definitions. It is a great source of scholarly debate. The good news is that. For every case where the definition of religion actually matters, there are probably 50 law review articles written about it. And, and what that means is it's more of an academic topic than one that really matters in real life. So the reason it's so hard to define is when you really get into it, it gets very, very difficult figuring out what should the definition of religion be for legal purposes. But the good news is, for our purposes today, I think it's enough for most of your listeners to think of what they normally think of when they think of religion. It's not just belief in God, but it's, you know, your, your belief in God would be included, but also things like organized religion, um, individuals who have their unique religious beliefs, so, you know, a system of think, thinking of the divine or 
kind of a an all-purpose metaphysical philosophy, those types of things uh, that we tend to think of as religion, traditional religious questions are what religion is. And usually in most cases, it's, it's not an issue of dispute. I've heard you speak at a, a symposium on freedom of religion in which you pointed out that it isn't necessarily restricted just to uh, beliefs in God, but can be beliefs about God or about religion in general, which would include even atheism. Yeah, no question. I think uh, the negative answers about the existence of God and about religion are just as religious as the as the positive answers. And so, for for our purposes, um, atheism and agnosticism are religious beliefs, and certainly for constitutional purposes, they have to be. And when we get into talking about what is religious freedom, I can I can give examples as to why why that is the case. But uh, there's no question for for legal purposes. Atheism, especially, is just another form of religion, and that bothers both atheists and devout religious people. But nevertheless, it's it's really the only logical outcome you can get to when you start to really parse what religious freedom means. Now, let's get into that. Let's talk about what does freedom of religion mean. Sure. So you could have, you know, look there there can be very a number of varying definitions, but I think where most people agree is that freedom of religion is represented by two usually complementary principles. One is the notion that government, as much as possible, should be limited in how much it affects people's free exercise of their religion. So the exercise of religion, not just belief, but actually exercising their religion and acting on it. As much as possible, government should be limited in affecting that. And then uh, a sister uh, idea is that Government should be limited as much as possible in how much it can promote or favor one religion or religious belief over another. That's where we get this idea of the separation of church and state, the notion that you can't have a state church, which is in the legal doctrine is referred to as an establishment of religion. A state church is called an establishment of religion. So you've got these two pillars, protecting the free exercise of religion and ensuring that there's not a state church or an establishment of religion working together. And when they're both working properly, that's how we end up with a state of religious freedom. And what that means is we end up with a world where government's role in people's religious choices is limited as much as possible. Government is largely staying out of it, and people's religious choices, their religious volunteerism is left largely to the beliefs that they find most persuasive. So we are all left on our own then to persuade one another, to teach one another, to convert one another, using the power of our doctrines, the examples of our lives, the, the spirit people feel when they visit with us, you know, how persuasive our teachings are. That's how we convert one another, not using the power of government. And uh, the only thing I'll say is this outcome of religious freedom, the way I've described it, is not obvious. It took humanity millennia to figure this out. And during those millennia, we had centuries and centuries of just bloody warfare. And it wasn't religion or religious beliefs that led to that warfare. It was the insistence on by people to want to use the power of government to try to convert others or to crush those people with whom they had religious disagreements. That's what led to all the warfare. And the great you know, discovery, I would say, of the founders of the United States and some of the philosophers immediately before them was this idea of religious freedom the way I've described it. That has been the profound shift we've made in, in the Western world largely over the last 200 years. It is sometimes contended 
that religion is the cause of huge wars, bloodshed, conflict, and that without religion, we wouldn't have those sorts of problems. Now, that may be a dubious proposition because sometimes religion is a proxy for political or cultural or other sorts of positions that are in opposition to one another. And they just have religion as a trapping for that or, or, or the wrapping behind it. So I don't know that that would really hold true. But you made the comment that this it wasn't really religion itself that was the basis of the conflict, but rather the attempts of one group or two groups to impose their religious views on the other. In that view, freedom of religion doesn't create, it avoids conflict. Yeah, I Am think I that's right? right. It's not religion that results in conflict. It's a lack of religious liberty. And by the way, just to be clear, I use the terms religious liberty and religious freedom interchangeably. So if I do that, there's no difference between them. But th that's the key thing to understand. If you go back and look at, say, the religion wars in Europe in the three centuries preceding the founding of the United States, the differences in beliefs between Catholics and Protestants were things like, in some instances, the nature of the godhood. The idea that priests should be celibate, the Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation, the Catholic practice of priests providing indulgences where people could you know, pay to be forgiven of sins. There's nothing inherent in any of those beliefs that should lead to warfare. What led to war or any of those differences in beliefs that should lead to warfare. What led to warfare was the attempts by both sides to say, well, we have these differences in beliefs. Let's use the power of the state to force our beliefs on the other side, to crush anyone who disagrees with us and force them to join us. That's where the problem exists. And so, you know, religions flourish, and, and we've proven this in the United States. Religions flourish and can provide much good to society without leading to warfare. It's when people start to commit this very human tendency to want to use government to force their beliefs on others that that's where we end up getting uh, violence and bloodshed and warfare. When we think about people with the mindset that their religion is the one true religion and that any other religion is either false or misguided or at least inferior, uh, it's common for some with that perspective to believe that God wants them to either force their religion on others or by law to make their religion the dominant and controlling religion, which, as you say, leads the people on the other side of that equation to resist it, and that leads to all these conflicts. Now, to me, as I make mention in my episode two own comments on freedom of religion, that just doesn't make any sense to me, because we're all children of the same God, and I don't say that just because so we ought to be nice to each other as brothers and sisters, because brothers and sisters sometimes fight, but because if God wanted everybody to be of one religion, then God would make it so. And he certainly, if he wanted people to be of a particular religion, God being God, he wouldn't need any mortal to try to impose that religion on anyone else. I mean, God could do that himself. So it just seems to me counterintuitive. Maybe it's just me, but it just seems counterintuitive to take a position that one's religious view should be forced on someone against their volition. Because the whole idea of freedom of religion, it seems to me, from a religious perspective, is that God gave us everything we have. The only thing that we have to give God is our free will acceptance of God 
so therefore to try to impose somebody else's view of religion on me or anybody else would not only rob me of my gift for God, but it would rob God of my free gift to him. Sure. And you use, so the, what you're describing is a very Lockean view of the world um, and the importance of preserving volunteerism, religious volunteerism. And you, you reach your conclusion using a theological argument. And the dilemma you have, of course, is that first, not everybody shares that theological view of the world uh, and, and the importance of religious volunteerism and free agency. The, the second problem is when you said, you know, you might have a religion out there that believes it needs to use the power of government to force itself on others. That's not just something that's hypothetical or might happen. I would argue almost all people have that tendency. And in the, in, the, in the academic world, we refer to it as the Puritan mistake. And what I mean by that is you have all these religious wars and persecution in Europe. The Puritans decide that they're going to escape that and come to the new world and create a colony here. So we often like to say that the Puritans came here for religious freedom, which is true. The, the problem is that the Puritans were interested in religious freedom only for themselves. They weren't interested in in providing it to anybody else. So when they got to Massachusetts, you could, you know, they literally passed laws that says you can live as a Puritan or you can get out. And that is a common human mistake. It's not just the Puritans. We see it from really every group you can imagine, Muslims, Christians, Jews, Puritans, atheists, agnostics, secularists, devout believers. It goes across the board. It's a natural human tendency to feel, well, if I have the truth, I should then use the power of government to force that truth upon others. I should get liberty, but nobody else should. There's a real problem with that because not only is it, for many religious traditions, it's a problem from a theological perspective, the way you've described it. It has the potential of robbing people of their, their own act of free will, of giving themselves to the, to the divine, however they see fit. But it's a real problem from just a pure liberty perspective. When you, people take religious beliefs seriously, including atheists and agnostics, and when you are going to use the power of government to rob them of the religious conclusions that they have made or to force other religious conclusions upon them, you're often going to get resistance. People will immigrate to avoid it. They will fight for it. They will kill. They will die. And, and so religious liberty prevents that type of bloodshed by creating an environment where people creating a world in which we can combat that very human tendency and temptation to want to use power of government to force ourselves upon others. And to go back to this idea of atheists and agnostics, you know, in the world of religious freedom that I've described, they are protected. So in my book, Deep Conviction, you talk about, I tell the story of a man named Roy Torcaso, who's an atheist. He gets protected from a government trying to force a belief in a supreme being upon him. But we are all, those of us who have other beliefs beyond atheism are also protected from atheists. And uh, in case you're wondering, you don't have to look very far to see that if atheism is not considered a religion for constitutional purposes, then atheism can be established as the state religion. And that's not just a hypothetical. We see it in communist China. We saw it in Soviet Russia. It, atheism can become the state religion if you don't treat it as religion for constitutional purposes. And what that means is atheists get protected, but just like everybody else, atheists don't get to use the power of government to force themselves on others. Again, if they want to persuade people to be atheists, it has to be in the strength of their arguments. If you take the point of view that you had that somehow to be opposed 
to any sort of belief in God is itself a religion, an anti-religion, if you will, or whatever, then to establish that would be a violation of that principle of separation of church, in this this case, uh, defined broadly, and state. So do, do you have any comments on that? The distinction between church and state and religion and state yeah, I mean, look, so the closet, first let me say, it's not as if all atheists are anti-religion. In fact, I know many atheists who are very much supportive of people and their religions, and they they personally have come to the conclusion that there is no God, that there's nothing divine. Uh, they, they've sought and, and prayed and read scripture and studied, and, and their experience, they felt like they haven't communicated, nothing has communicated to them. And so... They don't begrudge other people who feel like they have had communications, but they also, um, it's not something that they've adopted in their own lives. So not all atheists are anti-religious. In fact, I would say one of the biggest champions of the free exercise of religion of the 20th and 21st centuries uh, is a professor who himself is agnostic, but he has been the absolute biggest champion of people of all sorts of different religious beliefs in, in, in being able to believe what they want to believe without having government try to stop them. So that's one thing I would emphasize. The, the second thing I would emphasize is that, you know, it's easy. The, the Establishment Clause is the, is the first clause of the First Amendment, and it essentially prevents the formation of a state church. Everybody agrees on that. You can't have a state church. From there, it gets very, very messy as to how do we, how do we limit or how, how, how robust should the Establishment Clause be? Okay, could I interrupt you there? Sure. Would a state church necessarily be an organization? Could it also be a, uh, a state religion as you've defined it broadly? Well, that's what, I, so that's what I'm getting into. So a state, a state church would be kind of the classic establishments of the old world and, and actually many countries still in Europe. It would be... A, a, a church that gets all funding from the state, it's supported by the government, it's the official religion of the government, that's something that we know and everybody agrees on you can't have. From there, though, it gets very complicated. So, for example, can government endorse a particular religious belief? Can government pass a law that is its only purpose is to support one religion's view on something. For example, we used to have in a lot of the United States Sunday closing laws saying all businesses have to be closed on Sunday because it's the Sabbath. Can we have that? That's not really a state church as an organization being funded by the government, but it certainly makes it certainly supports the Christian view of the world, leaving many Jewish people to suffer because if their own Sabbath requires them to be closed on Saturday, and the law requires them to be closed on Sunday, they are then missing out on two days of work a week where they have trying to bring in revenue where the Christians only have to have one day off, right? So does the Establishment Clause prevent that? Does the Establishment Clause prevent having prayer in schools? And what does it have to say about that? Does the Establishment Clause only prevent government from coercing religion, or does it also prevent government from endorsing religion? Those are all the questions that are percolating out there. And they're not clearly defined. If, if there's anything your listeners may take away from this, it'll be a bit of frustration. The Supreme Court has struggled to figure out how to answer all those questions and figure out where are the lines. Like I said, everybody agrees you can't have a religion, an organized religion funded by government and, or, and, and being run by government. From there, 
it gets very, very confusing. There's lots of competing doctrines. The Supreme Court has struggled to really make this clear. And so you almost have to take it in a case-by-case scenario to figure out what the law is and what the rule is. We're very much in a state of flux in the United States. The good news is generally uh, it's not something that people are constantly butting up against, right? We don't live in a world where clearly government has adopted one religion and it's now going out and trying to oppress everybody else. We don't live in that world in the United States. But it does come up. It is an issue. There's a important case right now in front of the Supreme Court trying to solve one of these issues about a high school coach, a football coach asking to pray after games and trying to figure out what does the Establishment Clause say about that. So uh, it's a uh, it's a confusing doctrine that we as a society and as a legal system are still trying to work out precisely where all the lines should be. Yeah, and there with the coach, you have kind of a, a clash between free exercise and, and establishment. Yeah, and in fact, if you want, I mean, that would be a good case to maybe flesh the facts out a little bit to kind of ground we do that for your listeners. Yeah. So in that case, you had a high school coach who started feeling like he had a duty to God to say a prayer after each football game. Just a short, brief prayer by himself, thanking thanking God for, he's a Christian, so thanking God for the game and that everybody got through safely, that kind of a thing. And he felt like he should just kneel down quickly at the 50-yard line, say a prayer, and move on. That transitioned into him giving speeches, so players started joining him a little bit, and then he started giving speeches. Those speeches really became almost like prayers, he also inherited a tradition on the team of giving very religious-laden prayers or uh, speeches to the in the locker room where the team was a captive audience. At some point, somebody complained, and this started to become an issue. Almost immediately, the coach gave up saying the prayers or saying the religious speeches in the locker room, and he said, "Look, I understand that's a captive audience of students, and I'll give that up." Now, just a, a point that it's important here that we're talking public schools. Yes, so yes, very important. In a, a, a public school, you're you're funded by taxpayer funds, and so as a teacher or a school administrator, you in essence are a public employee. Correct, and you're a government actor. So that's why that's why the question of what the establishment clause allows matters here. It's a good point. If it's a private school, you can pretty much do whatever you want you know, within the normal bounds of the law. But certainly for religious purposes, you can do what you want. But in a public school where you're a government actor, you've got students who come from a wide swath of different beliefs. What are the boundaries, right? The coach agreed pretty quickly that he he shouldn't be giving religious speeches to a captive audience. So he he stopped doing that. And he also agreed that he wouldn't do them out on the 50-yard line where he was saying public prayers. But what he still asked for was, the right to just kneel down and say a private prayer by himself. I think by and large, most people agree that the speeches violated the Establishment Clause, that he's in a position of power as a government employee. He can choose playing time, right? Players will change their behavior to try to please the coach. And so he agreed to stop giving those. And I think everybody agrees that's a violation. Where the case gets difficult is, what about a, a public employee like that who wants to just kneel down, say a prayer for 10 seconds by himself, and move on? But the problem is it's inside of all the players. And one additional element to it. In his mind, as I understand it, he's made a commitment to God to do that. Right. He, this is an important part of his free exercise of religion. So he feels like he has this duty to exercise his religion. The school district is worried about violating the Establishment Clause. 
there's no question that they are, they've then issued a rule saying you can't do it. We just feel like we understand that you're wanting to exercise your religion, but the risk of violating the establishment clause and forcing your religion on all these students is too great. So we're, we're asking you to stop. Now, the problem we have is the Supreme Court has never been really clear on exactly how these two competing interests should be resolved. The one side would argue, well, there's no question you're burdening his free exercise of religion. And if you're going to burden someone's free exercise of religion, you have to have a really strong, compelling interest. And what the school district responds with is, we do have a really strong, compelling interest. We don't want to violate the Establishment Clause. That's a fair argument. The question is, is it really violating the Establishment Clause to allow a public employee to, to just kneel down and say a, a, a private prayer for 10 seconds? And if you say it is violating the Establishment Clause, what about then a, a school teacher who wants to wear a hijab? Or what about a school teacher who's praying over their lunch inside of the students and they can see her? That's where the case starts to get more complicated, and the Supreme Court's trying to figure out the answer to that. If they adopt what's called the endorsement test, that is, anytime a government actor is perceived to endorse religion, you say that violates the Establishment Clause and is not allowed, you can start to get to some pretty absurd results, and I'll just give you some examples. In Canada right now, they were so worried, in Quebec, in the province of Quebec, they were so worried about the idea of public employees, government employees endorsing religion and being perceived to have government endorse religion, that they made it so that anyone who has to wear some type of outward clothing as a representation of their faith cannot serve in any type of public capacity. So think like postal workers, public school teachers, government bureaucrats that you meet at the DMV. You couldn't do that. You couldn't do those jobs if you were Hindu, Muslim a Christian who wants to wear a large cross. What if you were a Catholic priest and you were working and you had a clerical collar, for example? Right. Or, yeah. or a Muslim and, and a woman and wearing the hijab, right. or hijab in Egypt where I used to live. Or an Orthodox Jew with, a, with you know, your, your yarmulke. So there's, so that now you have in Quebec all these different religions who can no longer serve in public employment. And that is, a, that is a sign, an odious sign that goes back centuries of a government that is oppressing religion, telling people they cannot serve in certain professions because of their religious beliefs. So to take it back to the coach, the Supreme Court really does need to give some clarity here on where the line is, what it should be, and how public employers and their employees can deal with this going forward. And I don't know what they're going to do. It'll be interesting. I think they'll rule in favor of the coach, but I'm more interested in what rule of law are they going to establish that we can use going forward to better understand exactly where, where and when public employees can exercise their religion without violating the Establishment Clause. That, to me, is the interesting question in that case. For the non-lawyers, they're probably looking for a bright line or something like that. When those of us who are familiar with these sorts of struggles over constitutional law recognize that it's virtually always a balancing test. And the question is, where's the fulcrum and the balance? They're the standard to be applied to that. And so if somebody's looking for complete consistency, well, you're never going to find it because each one of the justices has to strike some sort of balance. And that can vary from justice to justice as they're trying to, in good faith, to apply the same legal principles because there just isn't a bright line where, okay, here's the right side and here's the wrong side. If you've always got to balance things, well, that keeps judges in, in business, that's for sure. 
Yeah, and, and you know what the Supreme Court wants to do is figure out a way to rule in the case that gives a clear legal understanding that's going to reduce conflict over time, right? They want a world where public employers like school districts will know what the law is and they can teach it to their employees and those employees will know what their rights are. Uh, and then both sides can go forward without having to engage in seven years of litigation all across the country. You know, that's the hope here. So I don't know. I don't know how they're going to rule. I, I think it's it's not an easy answer. It gets very complicated. But one thing I'll tell for your listeners, if they want to see if they really value religious freedom, is what they should do is ask, pick someone who have beliefs as far opposite of you as you can get. So in the case of the coach, imagine if you had a coach who was a Satanist, actually worshiping Satan. Would you be okay with allowing him to pray at the 50-yard line? Would you be okay with allowing him to give public speeches invoking the name of Satan? If you're okay with it for one religion and not for the other, you've got to have a really, really, really compelling reason for that. Otherwise, you're probably just committing the Puritan mistake by wanting to support some religious beliefs but not others. Two episodes ago, I interviewed a Catholic priest who is also a chaplain for the Illinois National Guard. And he said one of the principles that they were taught is that about freedom of religion is when I protect your freedom of religion, I protect my freedom of religion. That's actually one thing I emphasize a lot with folks is everybody has religious beliefs in my view, including atheists and agnostics, and power is constantly shifting. So you, you want a rule that's going to protect you when you're not in power. As much as, and that's why you've got to find rules that will protect people when they're not in power, people you disagree with when they're not in power. To give you a sense of this, everybody I know gives lip service to want to valuing religious freedom. I mean, I've never heard someone just outright say, I hate religious freedom. They give lip service to it. The proof is in the pudding. The proof is in what do they do when they hear about a case with someone whose beliefs they disagree with. And I can just give you an example. When you have someone like, the cake maker and masterpiece cake shop case in Colorado. Immediately, what you'll hear from from folks, usually on the political left, not always, but usually on the political left, is well, that's not what religious freedom was for. It wasn't to protect someone like the cake maker. And then you'll find groups during the Trump administration, like sanctuary churches, who were offering sanctuary to immigrants who were in the country without the proper pay paperwork, right? And you'll see folks on the political right start pounding the table saying, well, that's not what religious freedom was meant for. That's not what religious freedom was for. In both instances, the same laws are protecting the churches and the cake maker. And you've just got people who disagree with the practice of their religion, the particular practice of their religion, screaming, that's not what religious freedom was for. But in both instances, it's actually exactly what religious freedom was for. Now, that doesn't mean the cake maker should always win or the sanctuary church should always win. What it does mean is that they have an argument under the Constitution to say, this is my exercise of religion and the Constitution protects it. Sometimes, if the government has a compelling enough argument, they can override that. But at least the religious believers get to make their claim and defend themselves. What we've been discussing here is really a very strong, in my view, secular or non-religious reason why freedom of religion should be protected and valued by everybody in the interests of a peaceful, orderly society. And without it, you've got all these conflicts that have been the historical norm. I think that's right. And, you know, there are very strong theological arguments as well for religious freedom. You already touched on them earlier about the importance of free will and allowing people to freely give their, their hearts and minds to God. 
But you're right. There's a strong secular argument for religious freedom. And it's, it really is the discovery of religious freedom, as we've been talking about, it really is a great gift to the world that came out of Western thought. The peace, we live in the most religiously diverse country in the history of humanity, and yet we are largely at peace with one another. I know that there are certainly there are plenty of problems and we see violence, but we're largely live in peace with one another. That is a peace that is incredibly unique historically, and it's unique even in the world today. There are plenty of countries where you don't have the type of religious freedom principles we have here, where there is just bloody warfare happening on a continual basis. So we need to make sure we don't take for granted the gift we've been given in the United States with religious freedom. And more importantly, what we need to do is as much as we can not to commit the Puritan mistake, uh, as all of us have a tendency to do, I think. What do you see as the most important developments in recent years as far or issues in recent years as far as freedom of religion, either the Establishment or Exercise Clause? And what issues do you see that are on the horizon now? I mean, let's start with what are the most recent developments, then turn to on the horizon. You know, I think the most important recent developments probably relate to protection for free exercise of religion. Your, your listeners may know this, but the United States has not exactly been consistent in protecting free exercise of religion. We went through large periods where we didn't do it very well. And the outcome was exactly what you'd expect, bloodshed and persecution and problems. Uh, in some instances, especially with Native American churches, you had gross viol human rights violations and, and even whole religions almost wiped away. I emphasize almost. So we have had problems, but we reached a point in the 20th century where we were really starting to protect the free exercise of religion. And then in, the, in 1990, the, the Supreme Court, in an opinion written by Justice Scalia, really confused everything. And they issued an opinion that was really, um, at the time, read, many people thought it basically took away all constitutional protections for the free exercise of religion. It was very, uh, a very scary time for many people. In the last decade or so, uh, and certainly in the last few years, I would say the court has started to give us a little bit more clarity. What was the name of that case? Sure. That case was called Employment Division versus Smith. And I write about it in my book, Deep Conviction, if people want to get the details of it. But the question then becomes, after that case, there was a lot of confusion. And I don't want to get lost in the weeds here because I think your readers will just, you know, their eyes will gloss over. But the reality is, <laughs> it, for a long time, people thought, well, maybe the Constitution doesn't protect the free exercise of religion the way we thought it did. And I would say, I would argue the recent developments in recent years, uh, the Supreme Court has started to issue a number of opinions reinterpreting the Employment Division versus Smith case in a way that has made it clear that there is robust constitutional protection for the free exercise of religion. So I, I would say that's probably one of the more significant developments over the last few years. Now, as you look down uh, on the horizon, what do you see there? We've talked about the coach case. I think the biggest issues I see coming down the pike are relate to that. There's a, there's a lot of people leaving religion in the United States right now. And it's hard to say exactly what effect that might have on religious freedom. I think that's a, a potential concern that people should be worried about. Because when people leave religion, they often try to replace it with something else, something that they're equally religious about. And what that might result in is a world where people in power no longer have a respect for 
religious beliefs and uh, and the religious beliefs of people with whom they disagree. That that I see as a big worry coming down the pike. The other one is there is a narrative in the United States right now of religion and religious liberty being a negative thing. They don't understand the religious freedom the way we've talked about it, the way it understanding it, the way it protects everybody. They see it as simply a vehicle, say, for protecting people who have uh, views against same-sex marriage. They see it as just code for bigotry, right? And that is a real risk, that if we don't understand what we have here in religious freedom, we risk losing it. And I, I worry tremendously about that. What you would call the modern version of the Puritan mistake. Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, look, I don't think the Puritan mistake, as I said, I don't think it's limited to Purit the Puritans. A better name for it would probably be the human mistake. And if we don't have robust protections for religious freedom, we're going to commit it again. People always want to commit it. You need these protections in place. And one of the worries I have is when people hear religious freedom, they immediately think of culture war issues like LGBT rights and abortion. They immediately tend to think religious, that's the only place religious freedom matters, so let's get rid of it. If you actually look at empirical studies, the number of religious freedom cases out there, filed cases in courts, that actually intersect with LGBT rights and abortion is less than 2%. So I want to emphasize that again, because I think most people would guess it's probably 90% plus. Less than 2% of religious freedom cases have anything to do with those issues. Most of the cases have to do with small religious minorities trying to get protection. You know, the Amish seeking protection from government, trying to force them to use a technology that violates their religious beliefs. The religious minority in prison, like a Muslim, asking to be able to wear a certain hat or not shave their beard. A historically black church having government come after them and trying to take their land from them. Spiritual, you know, uh, prisoners on death row wanting to have a spiritual advisor be able to pray with them when they are executed. Those are the places where religious freedom is working and doing its work. Uh, and those are, and there are thousands and thousands of those cases. The media only reports on the hot button culture war issues. I worry a lot about that narrative going forward, uh, leading to laws and other things that devalue religious freedom. We need, we need to help people understand that it's doing so much more than they realize. If you were to wrap this up into something, a message that you would like to share with the listeners, what would that be? I would say religious, I would like people to understand that religious freedom and religious liberty is an important liberty that every single one of this in this country enjoys. It protects every single one of us really from each other. And we need to value it. We need to understand it better. We need to cherish it. And we need to do our best to ensure that we're protecting the religious freedom of others, including those with whom we disagree religiously. That was a concise thought. To make it less concise, I'll say, go out and find people that you disagree with religiously. Protect their religious freedom. Then spend all the energy you have trying to persuade and teach them without using the power of government. That's the way it should be. No one is suggesting anybody should abandon their beliefs or abandon their core identity as religious believers or non-believers. We can hold true to everything we are, but we protect each other and then we try to use the power of our doctrines to convert one another. That's the way it should be, rather than spending all of our time and energy fighting for control of government to try to win these various disputes. The whole premise of this program is that uh, if people will do that in good faith, the Spirit of God unites people. It's the opposite of the spirit of contention, which divides them. 
And the difference is, you can tell, like the difference between day and night. And so if people approach that, I suspect if they do it, prayerfully asking for God to assist them, if they have a religious perspective, or if they don't have a religious perspective, asking, can you please help me to control my temper? <laughs> and uh, and they just they just talk to each other. There are examples of this happening on various hot-button issues, whether it be gun control, abortion, whatever they may be, where people have strongly held beliefs, but they find that their interests can overlap and unite people. Positions divide them. But as they start talking honestly about the things the, the things that really matter most to them, they're probably going to find some sort of kinship in there. And if they build on that, it will bring them together. And God unites. That's what we're all about. And if you don't have freedom of religion, well, that's the spirit of contention, and it's going the opposite direction. So I really appreciate the point about freedom of religion should be a fundamental value for everybody, regardless of their religious perspective or perspective on religion, because it protects everybody. And without it, we end up fighting each other. And that's the opposite of what I would think either seculars or people who are religious would want or should. Anyway, thank you. Thank you very much for being on this program. Now, I mentioned that you have published a number of things. You've appeared on other podcasts, and I'd encourage anybody, I did, just Google Stephen Collis and, or read your book, and that will be a, a launch point into a lot more that people can learn about this topic, uh, not just your thoughts, but other people's thoughts as well. So again, thank you for being on the program. Well, thanks for having me. And I'll just make a I'll just make a shameless plug. If you want to see great interfaith in action, uh, another book I have out is called The Immortals, about four chaplains from four different religions, all working together to save hundreds of lives uh, during World War II when a ship was sunk. And you can see what we're talking about there, and really being uh, manifest, where you've got people who they don't abandon who they are. They stay true to the, who their religions, what their religion is, and who their what their core identity is. But they work together for a common good. We need far more of that in our society right now. Amen. On that note, we'll subside. This is God unites, finding spiritual unity in religious diversity.